Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 6, and uh, we'll continue our studies in this great letter of the Apostle to the city at Corinth. This particular issue, that uh, the particular section that we're talking about here deals with one issue, and that is how to handle controversy in the church. As we saw last week in chapter 5, there was an incident of immorality in the church that required treatment. And uh, we understand from chapter 5 how to write that particular wrong. And then in chapter 6, another issue uh, faces us, that is how we deal with uh, situations in the church where one brother is wronging another, he's defrauding him in some way. What should we do? Well, Paul writes in verse 1, Does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we shall judge angels how much more matters of this life? If then you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. It's very clear, I think, what Paul is saying in this passage. It's a sin for a Christian to sue another Christian. It's wrong for us to be involved in any, any sort of uh, litigation of that sort. Uh, Paul is not saying here that we shouldn't go to law, go, to, uh, go before secular law courts. Because those law courts are unjust, it's simply that he has another way of handling those sorts of problems. Actually, Paul had a had very high regard for the Roman legal system and very often appealed to it. At one point in his, um, in his ministry, he appealed to Caesar, to the highest possible court uh, in the land. And on another occasion, when he was about to be beaten unjustly, he appealed to Roman law. So it's not that Paul felt that Roman law was unjust. It's simply that there is a, another way to handle those sorts of problems, a much better way. And uh, secular law courts are not the place to settle disputes between Christians. Now, what he tells us in verses 2 and 3 is that the reason that we're not to go before secular judges is because Christians have the capacity to discern justly. They can make righteous judgments. They don't need to go before secular courts. And the argument that Paul makes is that there is a time coming when we will judge both the world and angels. In other words, we have cosmic discernment. We're able to make uh, subtle uh, moral discriminations that the the world cannot make. 
We're able to perceive things that people in the world can't, uh, can't see. We understand things that they don't understand. Now, that's likely to be understood if you think that uh, by that we mean that Christians have some capacity that no one else in the world has, that somehow they're more inherently um, just or fair. It's simply not true. Paul's point is that we have the mind of Christ. And we saw from chapter 4 that the mind of Christ is the Scriptures. God has revealed his perspective on life. He has taught us to focus on the right things and to perceive justly. And because we have the scriptures and because we're aligned with him, we can make righteous judgments. The time will come, Paul tells us, when we'll be seated with the Lord in both, uh, in, on at least two occasions with the disciples. The Lord said that in the future we would sit with him on thrones and we would judge the world. And we'll judge on the basis of the truth as he's revealed it. We have the word. So we can make the same, uh, we can make righteous uh, judgments. And therefore it's unnecessary to stand before secular judges. It would be somewhat, somewhat like uh, a Supreme Court justice coming home and discovering that his children are squabbling and, and uh, then going next door to find someone to arbitrate because he was uncertain that he would be able to settle the issue. Paul says, we have the sort of discernment that's necessary to decide wisely between two brothers that are having a a difficult time. Now, that that statement can be understood, I believe, by by non-Christians, people that are outside the family, because it appears to be a sort of arrogance. We know something that no one else knows, But that's not what Paul is saying at all. We're only in the know because God has revealed truth to us. And that truth is available to anyone who will believe it. The problem is that people in the world simply don't believe it. If you believe it, we have the wisdom to make righteous judgments. We're in the know because God has revealed himself. Uh, A couple of months ago, I was sitting in the living room reading, and Randy... Uh, our oldest son came into the house and he, he picked up a Reader's Digest that was sitting on the coffee table and he thumbed through it and uh, said, Hey, Dad, let me give you an, an exam. And I said, Okay. And he referred to, uh, uh, to an examination that was, uh, that was set out to people to find out if they were qualified for MNSA, which is an association of, of uh, people of genius intellect. And this was just part of that examination. So uh, he, he read the first question, and I snapped off an answer, just like that. And uh, he read another question, which involves some rather complicated mathematics, and I just came back with an answer, just like that. And he raised his eye, one eyebrow, and he looked at me. And, and uh, then he asked another question, and I had the answer right on the tip of my tongue. And he started to laugh, and he said, Oh, Dad, you've read the answers, haven't you? <laughs> and I said, Yeah, I got to the Reader's Digest first. <laughs> Now, see, that's what Paul is saying. It's not that we have an edge on the world or that we have some legal ability that the world doesn't have. It's just that we have the scriptures, which are the basis for judging righteously. And they'll always be the basis for judging righteously. And therefore, it's unnecessary to go before a, a secular law, a court of law, in order to, uh, to secure justice for Christians. Not the place. We had a very interesting... Uh, exercise in working 
this principle out a couple of months ago. As most of you know, we've been trying to sell uh, some of our property on the corner of Eustick and Maple Grove, and uh, this has been very difficult. There have been a lot of problems to work out, and one of them was the fact that there's a clause in the contract that states the property can only be used for agriculture or agricultural or educational purposes or for a church building. And uh, if we were going to sell the property, then it would be purchased by some contractor who would subdivide it. And uh, Mr. Craig, who originally owned the, the farm, uh, the piece of ground that we bought, didn't want the property used for housing. And so that contract uh, stipulated that uh, his, his preference. And we discussed a number of ways to try to work out this problem. But uh, it seemed to be unresolvable. Um, until someone raised the issue of the legality of the contract, and we thought that perhaps if we, if we uh, paid uh, the entire purchase price, paid off the contract, then we would be free from that contract, from that uh, clause in the contract. And from a legal standpoint, we would have been. We could have paid off Mr. Craig, and uh, then we could have used the property for any purpose that we desired. But I'll never forget one particular meeting where we were discussing this issue and Les Ankenman, sitting over in the corner, not saying too much, said, you know, we just can't do that. I don't care how legal it is, we just can't do that. Because Mr. Craig is more important than a piece of property. He's more important than money or anything else. We just can't do it. And you see, that's the kind of judgment that Christians can make when they're acting according to truth because they can focus on people rather than on things and property and houses and materialistic uh, things. They can focus on people. Now, that's why Paul says it's unnecessary to go before secular law courts. We have the discernment to pass righteous judgment. And the procedure for handling problems of this nature is spelled out in verses 4, 5, and 6. Let me read uh, these verses again. If then you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Again, negatively. He says not to go before judges in human law courts. Not because they are of no account. The translation is a bit too strong here. The point is that they don't have the wisdom from above. Man's justice can only deal with things. It can't focus on people. That's the basis on which human, uh, the human uh, legal process works. Justice is blind. It doesn't look at motives. It doesn't look at uh, personalities or people. It's cold and impersonal and logical. It just deals with things. Paul says there's a, there are other issues at stake. So when these sorts of uh, disagreements arise, in verse 5 he tells us, uh, Is there not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? See, that's the procedure to follow. When two Christians have a, a legal problem, one is being defrauded, uh, someone is being cheated in some way, we're to call in a, another brother, one wise man, who can judge between these two brothers, a neutral third party who can arbitrate between them. 
That's the procedure to follow. Uh, just this past week, I had a man call me and tell me that a member of his family was being defrauded, he thought, by another Christian. And his question was, what should we do? And I thought immediately of this passage, because I had been reading it a week or so, or a day or so before, and uh, reminded him that, that Scripture says the answer is to find one wise man who can arbitrate, and gave him the names of two or three men in our congregation that I thought would have the sort of wisdom that was necessary to make this decision. Paul says, that's the way you handle it. You don't sue one another. You don't drag all of this out before the world and air all of your dirty linen before the non-Christian world. You get these two brothers together and you, you appoint one man, one wise man, who has God's perspective on things. And he can arbitrate between, between these two men. And then in verse 7, he tells us what happens when negotiations break down. Suppose you get two men together and you bring in a third party and they still are unwilling to reconcile. There's hardness of heart. And one man insists on his own way. He won't listen to counsel. What do you do? Well, verse 7 tells us. Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? It's odd the way Paul puts it. He says, uh, even if you win, you lose. Suppose you do go to um, a secular law court. You sue a Christian brother, and you win your suit. Even then, Paul says, you lose. There is a character in history by the name of Pyrrhus who was king of a tiny kingdom called Epirus on the uh, west coast of what today is Italy. And uh, he was at war with the Roman Empire. It was a very small kingdom, but a very wealthy kingdom, and the Romans wanted that particular piece of land. And so they went to war against Epirus, and Pyrrhus mounted a, his entire, uh, almost the male population as an army. And they marched against the Romans at Asculum, and they defeated them. It's one of the very few defeats that the Romans suffered during this time. But he destroyed his entire army. And when he limped back into town and was praised for his victory, he says, uh, one more victory like this and I'm lost. And uh, from that has come our expression of Pyrrhic victory. That is, we win, but we lose. And that's what Paul is saying. Even if you win, you prove your case in court, and you retrieve your piece of property, or you get your money back, you've lost. You've lost personally because you've diminished yourself in that you've acted contrary to Scripture. Anytime we act contrary to the Word of God, it hurts us. Something happens to us. We're depreciated as an individual. We violated the Lord's words. If someone sues you and takes your coat, give him your cloak also. See? And whenever we violate the word of God, we suffer. But more than that, Paul says, we suffer corporately, corporately as a church. Because what we, what we do is display before the world our own disobedience and rebellion. You see, we ought to be entirely different from the world. Jesus said, what do you do more than, than the pagan world? What is it that sets you apart? And if we fight and quarrel and squabble and demand our rights and insist on our own way and defraud and cheat one another, we're no better than anyone else. 
and the world would look at us and say, what, what is unique about, about that group of people? And so Paul says, you've lost. Even if you win, you've lost. Why not be defrauded? He said. You see, if we understand the way God looks at life and things, we understand that people are the most important thing on the face of the earth. And we'll be willing to be cheated and wrong in order to seek the best for the person. People are far more important. You see, the pattern that the Lord set for us is that people take precedence over everything else. That's why Jesus suffered all the wrongs that he suffered. It was for us. Because people come first. People have ultimate value in the, in the scheme of things. That's where our treasure ought to be in people, not in things. And in order to preserve the, the good of some person, we may have to be wronged and defrauded and suffer defeat. It may happen. Harry Ironside used to tell a story about a meeting that he attended when he was a child. He was eight or nine years old, and uh, the meeting grew very heated, and uh, a gentleman stood up and began to shout, insist on his own way, said, I demand my rights. And there was a man sitting on the front row who turned around, he was a little bit hard of hearing, and he said, Yeah, what's that you say? And whenever you ask anyone to repeat a statement like that made in anger, it somewhat takes the wind out of your sails. And the man said, well, I, I said I demand my rights. And the man said, you demand your rights, do you? Jesus came to get his wrongs, not his rights. And you see, that's what Paul is saying. If we insist on our rights and that everyone treat us justly, then we've missed the whole point. There may come times when we have to be wrong and accept that wrong because some person is at stake. People are far more important. That's what Jesus is saying, I believe, in, in Luke 12. In answer to a question that was raised, turn with me to that chapter. Luke 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Note that he doesn't say, uh, Lord, will you arbitrate this disagreement between me and my brother? He's saying, tell my brother to give me what's coming to me, what's rightfully mine. And that explains why Jesus answered as he did, Man who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you. And he said to them, Beware, be on your guard against every form of greed. You see, he put his finger right on the issue. The problem was an acquisitive spirit. It was greed. The man wanted a thing. He wanted money, even if it meant harming his brother. Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive, and he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, 
And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. See, here's a man who, who had the wrong priorities in life. He put all of his time and effort and thought and energy into laying up treasure on earth instead of laying up treasure in heaven. Things were more important than people. That's the tragedy of life today. We've taken that principle and turned it upside down. Scripture teaches us that we're to love people and use things. And unfortunately, we use people in order to obtain things, and we love things. And we want to amass more of them. So we hurt and wrong and create destruction wherever we go because of things. Jesus says that's foolish. We need to be rich toward God. And then in the rest of the chapter, he explains what that means. In verse 30, all these things, that is, things that we eat and drink and wear and uh, property and things that we put on our property, all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things, but seek for his kingdom, and these things shall be added to you. Where are we storing up treasures? Is it, is it here? The things that we can see? Material things? Or are we storing up treasure in heaven? Are we investing our lives and our energy and our time in people? Not using people. I, uh, we got to be sort of Monopoly freaks around our house at one point, and uh, we had a game of Monopoly that went on and on and on forever, it seems like. And uh, I got to be quite a tycoon as a Monopoly player, amassed millions of dollars, and had property all over the board, and no one could get past me, and had hotels on Park Place, and, and vastly wealthy. And, uh, and yet every day when we get through with the Monopoly game, We'd fold it up, and I would come back to life, and I would see what I was really worth. I was not driving a Rolls Royce. I was driving a Honda, and uh, my house was not a mansion, and I did not have three hotels on Park Place. I didn't even have one hotel. You just sort of come back to life and, and reality. It occurred to me one time that that's pretty much what the Lord does with us. He gives us a little paper money to play with during our lifetime. And uh, we, can, uh, we can amass a fortune, and he, he lets us do that. But then the time comes when he says, now we're just going to fold the whole game up, and now we're going to see what you're really worth. And you see, that's what Jesus is saying. What is it that's important to you and me? The real test is, what do we value above everything else? And if it's people, and investing in people's lives, then we'll be willing to be defrauded. What's a human life worth? A hundred dollars? A thousand dollars? Ten thousand dollars? A million dollars? It's worth the life of the Lord Jesus, an infinite price that he paid. That's how much, that's how highly God esteems a human life. Can we esteem it any less? And what's a few dollars when balanced against a life? See, that's Paul's point. Be willing to be defrauded. Overlook wrongs. Forget it if someone, if a brother cheats you out of a few thousand dollars. It's just money. It's far more important that you meet the needs of this individual because people take precedence over things. Now that is another one of those uh, principles in Scripture that demonstrates how radical the demands of the gospel are. I don't know about you, but when I became a Christian, I think I thought that being a Christian meant 
that I was to go to church 52 times a year, plus or minus a few, and uh, read the Bible and say my prayers and, and maybe give a little bit occasionally. And I did not understand what it meant to be a believer. The uh, demands of Christ's Lordship are very radical, and this is one of them. This is what sets us apart from people who don't know the Savior. It's this practice, you see, of prioritizing life along, of, along God's lines and seeing the value of people and everything else is secondary. Now Paul goes on in the rest of this chapter to um, describe how fundamentally different our, our life is because we've come to Christ. Verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? It's a little bit difficult from our translations to see the connection between this section and what goes before. But uh, if you look at verse 8, the word that's translated wrong there is based on the same root as the word unrighteous in verse 9. And it could be translated this way. On the contrary, you yourselves act unrighteously and defraud and that's your brothers. And do you not know that those who act unrighteously shall not inherit the kingdom of God? You see what he's saying? And if I can act unrighteously toward my brother in cheating and defrauding and wronging him and insist upon my rights no matter what it does to him, then I may not be a Christian at all. Now he's not saying to fail once or twice disqualifies me and makes me, uh, causes me to lose my relationship to the Lord. But he is saying if this is a pattern of life, if this is the way I'm living my life, and I'm just blithely going on, stepping over people, trampling on their rights so I can make money, then I may not be a believer, and I should take a good, hard look at myself. Now notice how Paul argues. He does so very effectively. Paul is very canny. And he catches us when we're not looking. Do not be deceived, he says, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals shall inherit the kingdom of God. These, are all, these all have to do with sexual sins. The uh, one here, here he describes as a fornicator is a male prostitute. As we've said before, the city of Corinth was saturated with illicit sex. And there were male prostitutes in the streets plying their trade. And any Christian reading this passage would say, Right, Paul, it's obvious that no Christian can justify a lifestyle of fornication. He may fall into it occasionally, but he can't justify a pattern of life based on, on this sort of action. Neither fornicators nor idolaters, up just on the hill behind uh, Corinth, was the great act of Corinth, the defense center for the city. In the middle of this uh, structure was the temple, was a temple dedicated to Aphrodite with hundreds of, of male and female prostitutes there that made their way down the side of the hill every day. Idolatry in, in Corinth was linked very closely together with, uh, with sexual uh, excesses of various types. And the Christians would say, right, Paul, certainly those idolaters up there on the hill will never inherit the kingdom of heaven, nor adulterers. Uh, marital fidelity, as well as, as chastity, was virtually unknown in Corinth. 
nor effeminate. The word just means soft. It's a word that uh, was used of young men and boys that, were, that allowed themselves to be abused homosexually, nor homosexuals. Whole, the entire Roman Empire was, was rampant with homosexual practice. Nero, who was the emperor at that time, was homosexual. He had married a, a young boy by the name of Sporus, took him as his wife back to his palace. He married another man whom he called his husband. The, the culture was just shot through with that sort of thing. And the Christians would say, that's right, Paul. Give it to those old uh, idolatrous uh, pagans. That's what they deserve. They'll not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And thieves, and every man could identify, because the big uh, issue in Corinth most of the time was petty pilfering in the gymnasium. If you think anything's new, it never is. They, they would hang their clothes up in the locker, and, and they'd be stolen. And uh, that angered everyone, and there were probably signs up all over the place, the thief will be caught. As a matter of fact, the, uh, the uh, pilfering, thievery, was, uh, was a capital offense in Rome at this time. It was so bad. And so Paul's zeroing in on issues that all these Christians would agree should not characterize a Christian. And then in verse 10, nor covetous. The word just means greed. It's the same word that Jesus used back in Luke 12 when he said, Beware of every form of greed, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. The word is translated swindlers as, the, as a word that was used for the grappling hooks of those days. When they were fighting naval battles, they'd throw a hook over the, onto the deck of an enemy ship and pull it in. It just means something that grasps. It's referring to an acquisitive spirit, a desire to have more, greed, and, and a materialistic outlook on things, having and possessing things will satisfy you in a desire to have more and more and more of these so-called necessities of life. You see what Paul is saying? Not only are fornicators, gays, people who practice these things, adulterers, thieves, uh, not qualified for the kingdom of heaven, but neither are people who are greedy, materialists. That's a very weighty argument. Now, again, he's not saying that to fall into any of these sins periodically disqualifies us. He's saying you can't go on justifying this kind of lifestyle. It's not Christian. It's non-Christian. And it shouldn't characterize you because, he says in verse 11, such were some of you. If I were to ask those of you here who have been guilty of of any of these sins in the past to raise your hands, I'm sure almost all of you would have to plead guilty to some of these things. But Paul's point is that's all in the past. That's the way we were before we came to Christ. We have a new standard of life, a new lifestyle. Now, we've been washed, he says. We've been sanctified. That is, we've been set apart for God's purposes. There's a uniqueness about us. We're different. You were justified. You were declared righteous. You exist in a state of being right with God. And all of this is done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. You see, it, these things should not characterize us as Christians because that's not what it means to be a Christian. 
Christ has saved us from all of this and given us an entirely new perspective on life so that we don't need to think in terms of money and things and material and the material aspects of life, but people. So focus on people. And therefore, we're willing to be defrauded. We're willing to be cheated. If that will serve the interests of, of some other uh, brother. William Barclay, who uh, knew the Roman world quite well, wrote this about this particular catalog of, of sins that Paul gives us here. But then after this dreadful catalog of vices, natural and un- unnatural, there comes Paul's shout of triumph. And such were some of you. The proof of Christianity lay in its power. It could take the dregs of humanity and make men out of them. It could take men lost to shame and make them sons of God. There were in Corinth and all over the world men who were living, walking proofs of the sheer recreating power of Jesus Christ. And the power of Christ is still the same. No man can change himself. But Christ can change him. There is the most there is the most amazing contrast between the pagan and Christian literature of that day. Talking about Paul's day, Seneca, a contemporary of Paul, cries out that what men want is a hand let down to lift them up. Men, he declared, are overwhelmingly conscious of their weakness in necessary things. Men love their vices. He said with a kind of despair and hate them at the same time. He looked at himself and called himself a man intolerable. That is, he couldn't stand himself. He knew what he wanted to be, but he couldn't become that. Into this world, conscious of a tide of decadence that nothing could stop, there came the sheer radiant power of Jesus Christ, which was indeed triumphantly able to make all things new. You see, that's what the Lord has done. He's given us a new purpose for living, a new perspective on life, and a new power for living that life. If we reject that power and, and live as, as the world lives, those without a relationship to the Lord Jesus, we just demonstrate that we've never really received him. We've never related ourselves to him and to the power that is available to us. But if we have, then our lives will reflect it. There will be a distinctiveness and a uniqueness about our life. We'll be characterized as truly Christian.